Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents Acme Media. I am Christine Becker. And I'm Michael Kackman. Sorry for my thick voice here, but literally... Brenda Vaccaro. Well, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, the morning after I handed in grades, but probably like an hour after I handed in grades, I suddenly fell, you know, traumatically ill from Separation a Separation anxiety? Cold. I don't know. I think it, you know, as if my body was holding out, and then when it realized it didn't need to hold on anymore, it just completely gave up. And so here I am, which sucks because I was so excited. I had not only handed in my grades, but I also had an overdue uh, chapter, book chapter that was due. And I got that in that same day. So that night I was thinking like, oh, tomorrow I can literally do anything I want. I could drive to New York if I want to do anything. And then I woke it up just feeling like hell and I never left my couch. So... Well, couch is good. It's good. And it's probably what I would have done anyways. Even though I was perfectly healthy, I probably would have laid on my couch Couch anyways. So, yeah... Uh, but I am at least able to speak to uh, bring... And for that, we are all grateful. Well, I hope so. Um, and I have a piece in here where I didn't have a cold, and so I I know, actually... you do a lot of, you, you do a lot of uh, speaking. <clears throat> I do, I do. And so it, it will sound, it'll sound like a different person, but I trust, trust, trust me, it's me. Um, that piece, actually, I got out to Los Angeles and went and visited the motion picture, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Yes. Uh, yes. But their archives specifically and had a great conversation there with some archivists, uh, restoration specialists, public access person. Um, so really great conversation with them. Yeah, it's a, it's a good interview. Let's give it a listen. All right. Well, on a recent trip to Los Angeles, I stopped in to visit an old grad school friend, Michael Pogorzelski. Mike also just happens to be the director of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Archive. So my visit consisted of a tour of the archive vault and a chat with Mike and two of his colleagues, Joe Lindner, preservation officer at the Academy Archive, and Mei Hadong, public access manager for the archive. I started with asking Mike to share a bit on the archive's origin and the basics of what is in the archive's collection. The Film Archive is celebrating roughly 25th anniversary this year. Uh, The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, our parent organization, was founded in 1927. And as far as we can tell, films started coming in relatively soon after the organization was created in like 1933, I think. Film collection and film preservation wasn't a core mission of the Academy back then, but there was a desire to preserve the history of this art form. I mean, and that's one of the reasons the Academy was founded, was to legitimize cinema as an art form. And so in the 30s, the people who were looking for homes for things were literally the pioneers, the silent film pioneers, who said like, well, I have all of our scripts and title cards and equipment in some cases. And everyone agreed that it was valuable, um, but nobody really knew what to do with it except to keep it and put it into storage. And so that's kind of how the film collection started. Um, it wasn't until the, the late 80s and the early 90s as the film preservation movement started to gain more steam um, and more recognition that the Academy decided it would be a worthwhile endeavor to spend money and time contributing to the film preservation effort that was going on. So when the archive was founded, its mandate was, and I quote, 
to collect and preserve the significant contributions to both the art and science of the motion picture, which, if you think about it, you could really fit almost any film <laughs> under that very wide umbrella. Um, and we love the fact that the mandate is so broad. It's allowed, uh, allowed us to collect every type of film. I mean, literally every type of film. So we have in the collection 35, I believe, Edison Kinetoscope Loops, and then right up to this past year's Academy Award nominees and everything in between. So we have documentary collections, we have filmmaker collections, uh, you know, animators like Bill Plimpton, and documentarians like the Maisel Brothers and Robert Drew and, and Charles Guggenheim, um, independent filmmakers like Jim Jarmusch and Steven Soderbergh and David Lynch and Gus Van Sant. Um, we have an incredibly deep avant-garde and experimental collection. I mean, that focuses primarily on West Coast filmmakers, but you know, sometimes Midwest, the Stan Brackage collection is here. And we also have a really amazing collection of home movies that started when Academy members would donate their collections to the Margaret Herrick Library. So all of their letters, scripts, correspondence, etc. Inevitably, there would be home movies mixed in there with them. And sometimes the home movies are just backyard barbecues and birthday parties like any of our family's home movies. But oftentimes the filmmaker brought their home movie camera on set or on location. So we have these incredible moving images of movies being made, you know, at a time when no one was shooting behind the scenes footage, you know, for EPKs or whatever. So broadly speaking, that's the collection. One of the archive's primary missions is to preserve materials for the Academy collection, enabling future generations of viewers and researchers to access them. I talked about this process with Joe Linder, the preservation officer who oversees decisions about what the archive preserves. And Joe noted that when people think of the Academy Archive's focus on preserving films that have won Academy Awards, they naturally think of the prominent studio features like Sound of Music. And yes, they happily work on such films, but the studios themselves have motivation to preserve those films because they're economic commodities. Linder said the archive is therefore devoted to so much more, including working with so-called orphan films. He explains. The short films, the documentaries, the animated films, the silent films and home movies, that there's no one behind, no copyright holder who's going to make money off it, that's what we stand up for. I mean, of course, we also stand up for what's in our collection, so sometimes we have something that's not nominated, but it's here, and it's rare, or it's unique, and then, or it's at risk. The elements are turning or going to go bad, or there's just no way to show it to people. Um, if a film is sitting on a vault locked away, it's as good as lost, I always say. So when it comes to preservation, I think that means simply that the original artistic achievement is there, it's available for the future. The funny thing is with the orphan films and the nominated films, there's often an overlap. Um, we started giving the documentary category in 1941, the short film category six years after the first Oscar. And uh, while many of those first categories, those shorts were dominated by the studios, as soon as the, you know, the 50s happened, it's mostly independent filmmakers who made documentaries and shorts and who won Academy Awards and whose films are almost completely forgotten. So I've done things where I've called someone up by just Googling them and said, did you make this documentary in 1969 that won an Academy Award? Sometimes it's not them. Sometimes it's uh, a guy said, I can't believe someone's finally asking me about this film. So it won an Academy Award and you know, until we started looking for it, it was kind of forgotten. Uh, other times, those filmmakers have said, yeah, 
I, I don't know, it was many years ago. You'd think winning an Oscar would mean something. Or <laughs> they say it was under my bed and I haven't checked it, or it's under my bed, I opened the box and the lab sent me the wrong film and now the lab is closed forever. Or sometimes they just don't know and they, they find a VHS tape and say that's all the best they've got and we have to keep looking. So a lot of what we end up doing is research first. I mean, when it's here, you know, it's the, the sort of obvious stories like um, Metropolis, you know, we've got part of it, but it's been cut down and someone discovers the piece that fits it in. You know, or a lost film altogether, that happens and we find a film that no one else had a copy of. Recently, an Australian collector mm -hmm. dug up a 1925 film, the first film that Lewis Milestone ever directed. It was called Seven Sinners. He got pretty good reviews for being a first-time director and won Academy Awards a few years later. The front page and All Quiet on the Western Front. But that film was lost, and the Australian collector found the only known copy. You know, it was about 80% complete, but that's better than what we had before. Sometimes that happens, but a lot of times it's uh, trying to even figure out what is in our collection. I mean, you saw Walking Through the Vault, sometimes you look at the titles and they're completely unfamiliar. There's material that was given to us and we don't even know, uh, you know, what it is. Of course, there isn't infinite time and money to restore and preserve everything ever made, so materials have to be prioritized. Joe talked about how those decisions are weighed and made. Academy Award nominee, that's important to us. Did they make other films that are nominated? Uh, are they an important filmmaker that's not as well known, that was influential then, but it's hard to see their material? Sometimes that motivates us. What do we have? Is it only a, a secondary copy and there's supposedly a better copy in Europe and it's going to turn up in a few years? Well, maybe spending a lot of resources means it's not worthwhile, but is it at risk or is it already too bad? You know, the color's faded, that means it means an expensive digital restoration, but then balance how significant it is and how you know much we're going to be able to show it and get it out there versus something that uh, is maybe in really good shape but not well known so it's much easier to do so it's always that that kind of balance sometimes we do it you know it's not just motivated by what we can show we want to protect it and copy it before it's gone uh, but we don't make that decision that this is a fantastic film and you know, we're going to do it because it's going to please an audience sometimes the films aren't so great but they have to be done because otherwise they're going to be lost. So um, I would say there's a film that was nominated in the documentary category, the first film ever nominated also for cinematography. It's called Navajo. It was very much at risk, very hard to see. We had to copy it. It wasn't cheap. It's a significant film and interesting in its way, but it's not the most exciting film to watch. But if we hadn't done it, the alternative was it was going to be lost. So we make those decisions. It would be great if everything we preserved also had an audience that loved it, but we're also, I don't want to make those decisions just to preserve the fun things. So sometimes you're preserving stuff, yeah, that's not, not really exciting to watch over and over again. We're looking at things that might have been poorly reviewed at the time, and then you show it in front of an audience and it, it gets a great reaction. Another silent film called The Blazing Trail, it's a pretty minor film. Mary Philbin was the star, it was her first film. She was in The Phantom of the Opera, the silent one, but otherwise totally forgotten film. But we ran it in January and people turned out for it and surprisingly liked it. I mean, it's a weird little film. And again, got very mixed minor reviews at time in 1921 when it came out. But a modern audience seeing it again, they were really excited to see something like that. Or types of films that are you know offered to us, but it's such a burden to identify what they are. But if you throw them out without even looking, then you, you close off that possibility of preservation. And there are some action film, low-budget action films from the last 10 years that get terrible reviews. And it's a good question, do we even save our resources to keep it, much less to preserve it? But, you know, 
we've also seen that revival of interest in those kinds of genre films from the 70s. Tarantino loves action films. He doesn't sometimes just love the films. He loves them that they also look terrible, which isn't quite the way we do it. You know, he loves a beat up old print and that kind of thing. Um, he loves the, the films of that era, which back then may have been not really well regarded and, and mostly aren't as well regarded by audiences and critics. But you know, when he starts liking it, then other people start liking it and get interested in these genre picks. So you hate to say, well, you know, that's not important for us now. That's not the art of cinema. Because who knows, in 100 or 200 or 500 years, people may love that stuff. So I, a lot of times when talking with the preservationists, and we're making these decisions. So sometimes I trust them. They're working on their collection, and they say, we should preserve these three films with our limited money. And I say, okay, those sound good. I mean, we'll talk about it and say, mm -hmm. well, what are they? Who's the filmmaker? But I don't know, because I haven't been through the whole collection. And, and I tell them, we make these decisions and you have to be able to sleep at night because no one is looking over your shoulder. We don't have the time. No one looks over the rest of the hundred films and said, well, why'd you pick those three instead of the other hundred? We just don't have the time. And the same thing when we do the preservation, we think, should we do it this way or that way? No one goes back and questions you. You know, you think there's a lot of scrutiny over a restoration, maybe for Lawrence of Arabia, but not for the majority of the films we do. So no one, they trust us. You know, we do document it. It's straightforward. We want to make clear what we've done. But unfortunately, most people, you know, it's hard enough to get them interested to watch the film than to think about what we did and why we did it. Mm -hmm. And so we're making that decision and everyone says, oh, I'm so glad you did it. And never even asks us to get to the why. So you have to live with yourself because you have to make those decisions. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's a good thing, you know. As an archivist, you can't just be a movie fan because you're not interested in just what's you love your type of movie you're making those decisions about you know why you're taking these limited this limited bit of money and spending it to make these expensive elements joe had to leave the conversation at that point to attend a meeting so i turned to mike to get his perspective as director on being a gatekeeper of this film archive and i put the stress on film there as we're in a period of transition to digital materials Mike noted that they're actually being flooded with film materials right now. He said they currently had 300 pallets of unprocessed film prints waiting to be dealt with by their archivists, particularly because people and companies keep bringing them film. They don't want to have to store anymore, and that they figure isn't important anymore, as digital technologies make film prints ostensibly obsolete. So the, the pressure to make the decisions, I mean, were essentially curatorial decisions, on the fly, and you know, with sometimes little time to do research, it puts an enormous pressure on the curators and on the archivists to make the right decisions when you have little information and or little time. So we're kind of spreading the net wide. We're, we're collecting more than we may think has archival value because we don't want to take a chance of losing something that the future will want to have or will benefit from. The good news is, is that in the 2020s, when the deluge years, when we're not getting hundreds and hundreds of film cans every year, um, film will start coming into the collection of not just the Academy Film Archive, but all film archives in more of a trickle than a deluge. And that will mean that the archive's next phase can begin, which will be, instead of all of us running around building, 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 you know, collecting, 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 getting, 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 getting in as much into the door as fast as we can, we'll be able to stop and actually look into the collection and figure out what everything is, figure out what has archival value and what may not, and curate the collection, you know, really make meaning out of it, as well as continue to preserve it. So 
the future is exciting, but right, the present is just hectic. <laughs> it's just totally stressful and, and hectic right now, and probably will be for the remainder of the 2000 teens. Our conversation then turned to access to this material, and here May Hadong comes to the fore. May is the public access manager for the archive, meaning she facilitates everything from lending archival prints to theaters and museums for screenings, to licensing home movie footage for documentaries, to coordinating viewing appointments for researchers coming to the archive. With that digital transition issue still in my mind, I asked May how she dealt with the circumstance of audiences and even some scholars and researchers increasingly opting for staying at home and watching movies on disc and online rather than out in a theater and on film. That's a struggle, absolutely, with archival access and reaching out to people we want to research and watch and see this material, um, mostly because... It's a hard sell to tell someone, you know, leave your apartment and go into the cold and go see this film. But I think once you see something with an audience, you really get the sense of it. Um, I try to see the upside of it, too. So if we're providing access to something online, and we do try to do that, um, especially if we're legally allowed to, right? But we have blog posts where we'll find a film that we love in our collection and we... uh, transfer it, we get, you know, we have a video copy made, we do research to find out more about the film and and what it is, and then we'll post it online. And I think that online access is great, particularly with and in context. So if that is something that we can do for researchers and scholars, we definitely would like to do more of that, but it's a challenge. Uh, So it is frustrating when people go out and choose to watch something on their iPhone or their iPad when they have access to a 35 millimeter print, absolutely. But that's not really the battle we try to fight as much as how do we get this material to at least provide it to, to so that people can have it in their hands in some way, a projectionist, um, a researcher, someone on site here. And battle is kind of a, the wrong word because you can't make someone like something that you like. And I feel that with film prints, and current film students, and maybe you can tell me if it's if it's different. I don't want to be their grandpa saying like, "You got to watch it on film. You got to watch it on film," because they won't. People just won't react that way. It's human nature. I think that unfortunately, the historical moment that we're in right now devalues film. That's fine in some ways because we're so super busy trying to save this stuff that there's no time to advocate or to or even remind people why film is so amazing, why any understanding of the first 100 years of this art form is going to need to be done through film and watching film on film. There's just no time right now. But the good news is, I don't think that we're going to have to fight or battle or convince people. I think that film students, viewers, film lovers' appreciation for for film itself is gonna come back around again. People are going to realize that it's not about whether digital is better than film or film is better than digital. They're two separate mediums, each with their own characteristics that you can appreciate as a filmmaker or as a film viewer. It's like vinyl, it's like um, Polaroids, it's like anything analog. And I'm really encouraged by how younger artists and, and art connoisseurs or whatever you are, I mean, appreciate the attributes of analog. You know, I'm not trying to be a Luddite or say like that, but it's, it's a preference. And I think that film screenings will be sought out, like May said, in, in, by the 2020s, 
when we're having that conversation, like, I don't want to leave my apartment and go out into the cold May. She's going to say, but they're showing it on film. And I'll be like, I'm getting my jacket. And we've noticed that already. I think that one of one of the things that we see with our loans program, which is um, pretty impressive in terms, I think, of how we get film out there, um, we see people borrowing films from us because they have the need. They say, well, I could get a you know, an element from the studio or this or that, but we have a special guest. We've got all these people coming. We really want it to be on film. Mike followed up May's comments by expressing his strong belief that academic researchers need to pay heed to the importance of watching films on film. I agree with all of May's points that if you're writing history, film history, whether it's industrial history, technological history, aesthetic history, then you need to look at the primary documents. And the primary documents that... Um, film academics are writing about are on film. So how you can get there and feel like you've you've written something with sufficient background to to speak with expertise and not consult film is kind of beyond me, I have to say. If you're even writing about film aesthetics and you're doing it from a Blu-ray, keep in mind the work that Joe is talking about in terms of film preservation and restoration, there are about five of him in between you and the movie. And what I mean by that is there is a technician who is making decisions about grain. There's another one who's making decisions about color, who's making decisions about brightness, who's working on the audio, who's resampling this or not sampling. There's also a compression artist who has a huge effect on what the image looked like. So their vision, <laughs> who is, is incorporated into what you're studying and making conclusions about. And it's, it makes me want to pull my hair out when I read analysis from someone, and I can tell, not that they were using the DVD, but which shitty edition of the DVD they chose to use, to and you know, that I know was wrong or incorrect. But unfortunately, they don't, didn't know that, and now they've drawn conclusions based on the errors that are in that home video version. So you gotta, if you had an original artifact like a film print, then you can cite that. And if, of course, there's the possibility that the film print was made incorrectly or has the wrong color or the wrong, you know, the audio, the, the optical track is too dense and so it sounds quieter than it should or whatever. Of course, there's always that. But you can cite the object and say that, and find out from the archivist where it came from and why it looks and sounds the way that it does and have it inform your analysis. But because when people don't, when scholars don't, it makes for shoddy, not so good scholarship. <laughs> May added that there's more than just film in the archive that researchers can consult. There is a wealth of contextual materials too. We at the archive have had a presence at SCMS for many years, I think since the year after Japan, so whatever that year was, um, in a row we've, we've had somebody there, either myself or my colleague Cassie Blake, who works with researchers directly. What we've found is obviously a great appreciation for, the mo for moving images, but oftentimes people don't understand that they could come to the archive and look at marketing material that we've got in our collection. We've got the world's largest known trailer collection, we've got featurettes, we've got home movies, all of these great resources to help write about and study film. 
um, EPKs, um, screen tests, things that that when when you tell somebody who loves film about them, their eyes get so wide and they're mm -hmm. so excited. And, and we really want people to know that we are a resource for that. We want people to come and research and look at these films and also and, and, and include that in, in their writing. Um, not just watch the Blu-ray or watch the DVD or if they're lucky, see a 35 millimeter print. We want researchers and scholars to say, wow, you know, how was this marketed? What was it like to be on set? You know, and not everything is on archive.org or on YouTube, and so I would advocate that people come to Los Angeles and research here at the Archive or at the Margaret Herrick Library, which, which has, you know, papers and manuscripts and files and photographs and all kinds of wonderful uh, material to research. Um, that's one of the things that I would say we really want people to know about with the Archive and the Library. May also wants people to know that she and the other archivists, curators, and librarians at the Archive have the expertise to help researchers find materials they might not even know are there. This also raises the issue of the researcher-archivist relationship, which both May and Mike were eager to address in terms of possible misconceptions on the part of academics. One of the things that I've found um, in these years is just the, that sometimes you know, there's like a wall between the archive and, and the academic community. And, and we want to break that wall down in, in a sense. We want people to know that they can call us or email and ask questions or, you know, um, find out what we have. Um, our database isn't online, but we uh, serve as the reference librarians for our collection and, and try to work with researchers to say, okay, well, you're interested in Linwood Dunn. Well, we definitely have this and this and this, and let's talk to somebody at the library and make sure you connect with them. And um, here's something from our Saul Bass collection that actually has, you know, uh, something you should research. Well, but it's not in the Linwood Dunn collection, but you didn't know that, but we did. Here's how we can help. And that's one of the misconceptions, I think, with archives is, is that we know you can't, you can't do this or you can't do that. And and some of it is there for preservation purposes. It's there because we have to do that, or it's there because of a, an obligation to a donor or a depositor or a rights holder. But oftentimes we, we do try to make that material accessible because we want it researched. That's why we're taking care of it. That's why we make it accessible. Yeah, I, sometimes Cassia may come back from SCMS. I haven't been to SCMS since I was in graduate school, which was a long time ago. And they come back with stories of academics talking about their experiences at libraries and archives, and the staff there sounds like someone who works at the DMV. Like they're not helpful, or they have to, you know, trick an archivist into letting them, you know, granting them access. And I'm dying to find out who these archivists are because although I haven't been to SCMS recently, I get together with archivists all the time, and they are not like that. They are like the people that May was just describing. They want to get this stuff out in the world. They're thrilled that someone is here looking at the collection. And I shouldn't speak for every archive. I can only speak for the one where I work and the people that I work with. But I, there is no one on this staff who would ever take a researcher and be like, buddy, you're just asking way too many questions. Could you give me a break, please? I have to go back to work. That, that, that sentence has never been uttered here and probably never will be because we will talk your arm off. These are people who are passionate about film, who know so much and can connect dots to a topic and a collection that the researcher could never do on their own. And to May's point too, even to connect, to connect dots between collections, to, to let the researcher know there's something that he or she didn't think was even relevant to their topic, but that 
proves revelatory and, and essential in the scholarship. So I don't know how much more of a plug we could give for the Academy Film Archive, but to everyone listening, come and use this archive. We're waiting for you. The light is always on. I have a funny anecdote, which is that um, somebody came to work for the, archive, for the Academy um, who had been researching here as a programmer for years, and so he and I had this uh, strong, you know, sort of relationship, and he came into my office and he said, May, so where's the secret list? <laughs> like, what else, what, what do you have that you're not telling me about? I was like, I told you everything <laughs> that we have. I've, I've spent hours on lists for you, to providing condition notes and telling you what is accessible and what is not. I even tell you when we don't have something we can lend to you, you know? Um, and it was, it, was, it was just a funny thing. I was like, this is somebody I've talked with and, like, seen at screenings and, like, had, you know, good conversations mm -hmm. with. And he was still thinking that I was holding but back. there was a secret list. So perhaps, you know, we have some work to do on our end, too, about, you know, making sure people know that they can come here and that even even though access is, that it access takes time. If it's done appropriately, it takes time and it takes expertise that we hopefully can provide. One last angle I wanted to ask them about was careers in archiving. What if a student wants to become an archivist? They told me that the traditional route back in Mike's starting day was to be trained in the archive through an apprentice system, but the current route is schooling, primarily getting an MA, such as through UCLA or George Eastman's program, the Selznick School. They did both warn, though, that the field is saturated right now, but Mike also said he's worried that with the disappearance of film, some may not even know they'd love to work with such materials. Well, and it's going to be harder. I think there'll be a different type of person who's, who's entering the field now just because I got into it because I just loved handling film. But there are no, there's nowhere to get that experience or figure out that, a, that you like film because it's not being used anymore. I mean, and that, that makes me sad because there may be some really great people who would be fantastic archivists if they knew, if they only knew how much fun handling film can be. Um, because it really takes a certain type a personality type with a combination of loves and passions because on the face of it think about what a film archivist does all day and I'm pointing to a film bench with two reels and two rewinds on it basically you're winding the film from one side of a bench to the other which could strike a lot of people as the most monotonous boring um, physically wearying just busy work that you could imagine, you know, outside of uh, you know working on an assembly line or something like that. But for the people who have a connection with movies, every reel is a is a new mystery that's kind of solved that unfolds and is solved in your hands, um, or you know, disappoints you because the print is faded or damaged, or thrills you because it's it's a it's perfect, it's near mint, and and you know that you've got something really special. There's no way for people to find out if they view film archiving as one dreary thing or one really thrilling thing. Um, so I hope that works itself out, but. <laughs> well, and I think that the field is changing a lot towards ob obviously like digital preservation and digital mm. access. So some of those skill sets are more uh, kind of like a combination of librarian and IT and um, and other things that I think are um, interesting to folks. So that so that's I think that there's an opening for that um, mm -hmm. in some sense. But also, you know, the through line for all of this is still it's still just stuff, right? And it's still how to catalog it, how to 
provide access to it, how to get people to see it. And so if that's a passion for somebody is, is managing and finding things and, and trying to get them out there into the world, I think um, it's, it's just changing like how you do it, but not why you do it. So if you have students who want to find out whether they have a film archivist trapped inside them just waiting to come out, <laughs> tell them to come here over the summer and we'll let people wind through some film. I mean, maybe not, uh, you know, an original negative, but we've got plenty of film that they can, uh, that they can play with. We, we do offer under, undergraduate and graduate level internships um, at the academy and at the archive. Um, and so if anyone's interested in that, um, they can email us at filmarchive at oscars.org and we'll get it, uh, get the inquiry into the right hands. If you would like to reach out to learn more about internships or what is more in the archives or how to access the material, oscars.org is the starting point. Under the Learn tab, you'll find the link to the archive, and we'll put all the relevant links on our website. Do give them advance notice of what you'd like to access uh, because it takes some time to prep materials for access, and I think we as academics want just as much to foster a great relationship with the archivist as it's clear from this conversation they want to uh, foster with us. And before I left, I asked May and Mike for any final thoughts along those lines. Anything that you see online, you've seen it in the past. It's something that was created months before, minutes before, hours before. And all of that, from what you see online to what you see in the theater, needs to be conserved. And we're really just there for part of the lifespan for this content. We're there to help shepherd it into the next world, to the next archivist, to the next person who's going to take care of it, to the next computer when we're all replaced. But, um, but that's really what we're here is for, you know, for this material, and we really want people to come um, and access it, not just uh, use what's uh, in their homes and available there. Use those things to reach out to us and reach out to different archives with content to make sure you're doing the proper research. When we talk about what we do, because we work at the Academy, we're kind of focused on, on artists, on filmmakers. And so we talk about the archive in ways that use metaphors like we're maintaining the well because filmmakers and film artists are always going to need to go back to the well for inspiration to see how other filmmakers tell their stories and how that can help them tell theirs in the present. With film academics, I guess the well is still there, but it's, it's the academic's job to help us make sense of it and explain to us why it looks the way it does and how to create context for us and to enhance our understanding and appreciation. Because if I'm a filmmaker and I'm bringing out um, Fritz Long's The Big Heat to watch because I'm also making a crime movie, I'm looking at that through a certain prism and can be inspired in certain ways, but um, it would help if I also knew the political context that that movie was made. And that can actually help me appreciate it more and understand what the filmmaker's saying more if you can understand that. Versus, oh, you know, you don't see someone get hit with a pot of coffee in the face every movie. So uh, I guess our, our plea is that we as archivists benefit from that too. It's a symbiotic relationship because we go to the trouble of taking all this time and showing them all this stuff, but then they share their notes with us. So we know something more about something that was in our collection. Um, our good friend, uh, 
Paul Raymaker was here a couple summers ago going through the Hal Ashby collection. And the Hal Ashby collection is huge, and we haven't really had a chance to get our hands around it because there's so much stuff in it. And as Paul was viewing things, he's like, oh yeah, there's an alternate cut of this scene from... Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so we enter that, and those become part of our record, and that way May can point someone, can point the next scholar to what they need. So, yeah, come out, everybody. Come. It's in L.A. How bad could that be, that you just come to Los Angeles for a few weeks, and you look through the collection, and I'm telling you, you will find, you will hit pay dirt here at the Academy Film Archive. Lots of good stuff in there. Yeah, I had a really great time, and thanks so much to uh, to Mike May and, and Joe for sitting down with me. Yeah, it was, it was kind of old home week there for... It was. The Wisconsin Film Studies program. Yeah, yeah. I did mention uh, there, Mike Pogorzelski went to grad school with him and Joe Linder as well, both yeah. of them UW-Madison grads. So it was great to catch up with them and to see, you know, things that, that my fellow grad students went off and did besides academia. Yeah, really good stuff. And, you know, I honestly, uh, before I listened to this piece, I really, I think I went in with the assumption that that the Academy is going to be um, a kind of organ of the, of the major studios, right? And that it would mm-hmm. just be gathering materials you know, that come straight from Warner Brothers and stuff like that. Um, clearly, they're doing a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. And they're really, really engaged with a lot of uh, moving image archiving kind of um, directions where ephemeral films and home movies and all that kind of stuff form a much richer portrait of our visual history. Yeah, and I thought that was, you know, Joe's reflection there about, of course, they do the studio films because they are the, you know, the, the studio's archive, but there's an interest in doing so much more. And even... As uh, Michael raised at the beginning of the interview, the original spirit of starting the you know the academy was this notion of preserving you know preserving the art of cinema, and so mm-hmm. that's really. Uh, and then Mike mentioning that 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 description can cover just about any type of yeah. of uh, material. But then again, then the flip side of that is then how do you decide out of this huge store of information what you're going to put all that time and money toward? Yeah, the other thing that this really made me think about a lot is, is the question of medium specificity and TV history. Mm. You know, we still, I mean, partly because the move to television history came at a very culturalist kind of moment. You know, there was a, a part of the way that TV was validated was as a site of important cultural activity rather than as an aesthetic form first. Um, and I think we're actually, TV historians are, are, kind of behind film historians in taking questions of aesthetics and, and technology seriously. So mm-hmm. I remember we were at a, I think you were there, we're at a flow conference last year or year before, and we were talking about kind of some of these questions. And I remember like kind of floating out that, you know, when we have our TV screenings for TV history classes, we should probably be watching them on picture tubes. Right. I mean, seriously, Yeah. you know, I mean, we've, like in our screening room, we can, we have, um, well, we have multiple screening options. We've got like the hundred inch flat screen, um, HD monitor on the wall, or we can take it up to the, to the Browning cinema and watch it, you know, what, 40 feet diagonal screen, something like that. <laughs> Both of which are great, but does that get you closer to the experience of I Love Lucy? Right. It's tricky stuff and really interesting to think mm-hmm. about. When I think the, the important aspect of that as well, when Mike brought up, uh, you know, at least in talking to the archivist, you'll know the origin of the film print and so forth. And I thought that was a really important point about sharing more information between mm-hmm. archivists, libra- librarians, and, and academics. And 
And at least whatever medium you're working with or through whatever means that might be different than the original, being aware of that and acknowledging that and making that itself part of your research seems very important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we've got another great piece here from Joel Neville Anderson. He uh, had a conversation with Nicholas Mirzoff, visual cultural theorist and professor of media culture and communication at NYU. Really interesting stuff we've got for you here. Let's give it a listen. From New York City, this is Joel Neville Anderson on the line with Nicholas Mertzoff, Professor of Media, Culture, and Communication at NYU. Professor Mertzoff is the author of many books, including The Right to Look, A Counter History of Visuality of 2011, which won the Anne Friedberg Award of Innovative Scholarship from SCMS, and most recently, the author of How to See the World, published by Pelican Books in the UK in 2015, as well as Basic Books in the US in 2016. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. You introduce the book itself as a kind of toolkit for thinking about visual culture. And one of the first helpful claims you make for people approaching that discipline for the first time is that a visual culture is not simply the total amount of what has been made to be seen, such as paintings or a film. And you outline some very helpful introductory ideas in a bulleted list towards the beginning of the book. And you state that all media are social media. We use them to depict ourselves to others. And I thought this entire list of kind of framing concepts was very helpful to, to begin to unpack the concepts of the book. And I'm wondering if you could begin by talking a little bit about how uh, you came up with these introductory concepts to begin with. As with most introductions to books, those <laughs> concepts were written more or less last. <laughs> the idea, I think, was at first to to assemble the project. And then you think, how does one introduce this to a new reader, to somebody for whom the very concept of visual culture is off-putting? And I think we found this over the years, frankly, that it hasn't been a helpful name for the field in the sense that it's not explanatory. So most people will say, if you tell them, I work in the area of visual culture, that doesn't help. I'll say, well, what, what does that mean? How, how do I make any sense of that. And so I was very resistant to calling the book something like visual culture or an introduction to visual culture, not least because I had written exactly that book before, but mostly because I didn't think it would help. And so I was very conscious, you know, having written the chapters, to want to write an introduction that would then, as you quite rightly put it in my mind, give a kind of toolkit to people who were coming maybe new to the field, but they're not new to the experience because anybody, certainly any young person, but really anybody now, knows that we live in an intensely visualized world in which people are both making and using visual media and visual experience of all kinds on a very much daily basis. And you wanted to put certain ideas into people's hands that related to that experience. So when you to say all media is social media is to give people the sense that media are things that we make as well as receive. Media are things that we use. Media are things that we are in constant dialogue with other people about and that they're very important to us because social media is so vital to so many people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As we talked about a bit before we began recording, I think the book is 
accessible to you know, a large number of scholars and uh, general readers. So I'm wondering if you could talk a, a little bit about how you came to decide to approach this book in this way, as opposed to some of your more specific historical studies, such as The Right to Look, which deals with the theory of visual culture in specific contexts. So look, the book was originally commissioned by Pelican, and Pelican published in 1973, John Berger's Ways of Seeing, without which we wouldn't be having this conversation in the way that we're having it. Uh, there certainly wouldn't have been a field in the way that I've come to experience it. So my first question to myself was, how can one write a book that doesn't try and tread the same ground that John Berger has trodden? But the second was to try and follow in his exemplary and pioneering footsteps, I think, of writing in a way that could be read by somebody who was not in a university degree or in, a high, in higher education, but somebody who's just genuinely interested in the plethora of visual media that surround everybody every day. And so I undertook or tried to write as far as I could without using what I would call technical language, what people outside the academy might sometimes call jargon. But from our point of view, I think we want to say theory. It's not that there isn't theory in it, because there's theory throughout, and there's nothing but in many ways. But that I didn't allow myself the luxury of saying, as Foucault says, and giving a little quotation to link pieces of my argument. And I tell you, I discovered something very interesting from doing that, which was that, in fact, that's a very often, just to speak for myself, not to speak for anybody else, I realized how much I used that as a kind of crutch to get myself from one place to the next, where maybe I don't really have a 100% sense of exactly how I'm making that transition. And so writing this was actually much harder, mm -hmm. much harder than writing a book in which I could quote from the most you know, erudite and recherche scholars and, and, and pitch it at that level. To say one wanted to explain these phenomena in a way that you know, my parents could read which is the and this is the only book of mine that they have actually read, hmm. was a challenge. And it, uh, it taught me a great deal both about how to write, but also about the sort of theoretical premises that underscore the work that I'm doing. Because when you have to explain it in a way that is indirect English, you really have to challenge yourself to the extent of, what do I really understand this to mean? Mm -hmm. Not that I don't think that theory is useful in and of itself, because it is. It's an extraordinarily effective tool for making progress in the critical work that we're doing, where we're trying to be cutting edge, and we're trying, frankly, to not restate everything that we always already know. We can refer to certain works and say, see, we know this from, as to a certain extent, Berger does, Walter Benjamin, in his, uh, in his own book. So that's, it was actually the most challenging part of the project actually, mm -hmm. was coming to that kind of writing. And it had the one source that I would kind of signal in this was the work that I have done as a social activist, right? Because when you're in that context, and I'm sure you know this too, being clever in the way that one's clever in an academic setting just doesn't cut it. I mean, nobody's that interested. Mm -hmm. You can, when, So uh, something that will make a great comment in an academic question period where you, frankly undercut the speaker's position by making a snarky remark. 
That goes down very well in academia. It goes down extremely badly in social justice context because people say, well, what have you actually contributed to? You just tried to take this guy down, but you haven't helped. You haven't added anything. You haven't given us something we can work with. So you have to learn to speak in a different way. And I think without having done that, I couldn't have done this book mm-hmm. in the way that it is. For whatever, you know, for all, all its flaws and, and faults that notwithstanding, whatever strength there is to the book does partly derive from that. Mm-hmm. Speaking as someone who's in the midst of dissertation writing and actually trying to indoctrinate oneself into that area of technical language or jargon, having to relay those ideas that theory relies on for different audiences or simply telling someone what you do and how it's important to a world outside academia is very helpful and clarity does a lot. And this book makes some very complex ideas much more relatable to the reader. And to begin with, you start with some really staggering numbers, which I think I'd heard maybe individually in in most cases, but you bring together to suggest a real historical transition that one might not have realized otherwise. So you state that over half the world's population is recently under 30, lives in a large city or urban area, and that nearly half of the people in the world have access to the internet in some form. And you say that this change marks a kind of rupture. In the first chapter, How to See Yourself, you talk about something called the moral panic of the selfie, which I feel a lot of people are immersed in. The direction of this chapter, as well as elsewhere in some of your speaking engagements, such as your recent Transmediale keynote, you talk about this proliferation of images, and you give great statistics on how many images are produced on a daily basis now, and steadily increasing over the last decade, as a kind of response to this experience of rupture and a crisis of representation in many forms from politics to images. So I'm wondering how you read this rupture in different forms in the book and how that's meaningful for the work you're doing now. Totally. It's a great question. And um, uh, several layers that I think we could unpack here. First goes back to this question of what world are we seeing now that maybe John Berger and his contemporaries in 1972, 1973, could not see. And your first point is entirely true, that the difference I'm making in this analysis is an assemblage of things that we do, I think, have encounter in media, in academia, and elsewhere, one by one. But as I started to put them together in my own mind, I thought, hang on a minute. This adds up to something very significant when you have, as you're saying, a world which is mostly young, mostly living in cities for the first time, and this is a huge shift, and mostly with access of some kind to the internet. And then at the same time, we're seeing this gigantic upsurge in the creation of imagery of all kinds. So a trillion photographs, at least, created in 2014, and 700 million Snapchats posted every single day, 400 hours of YouTube every minute. So the idea that we once had that it would be possible or interesting to write a history of images is now clearly just an ambition that is sort of wildly beyond any human possibility. So 
what I'm interested in then is rather than writing a history of images, is asking the why question. Why are people making so many images? And again, we can't just say it's because they can, because to look at the genealogy of the recent cell phone is to see that manufacturers have responded to the fact that people want to take pictures to turn them into primarily visualizing devices. It didn't have to be that. They didn't start out like that. They started out as telephones. Now, for the most part, the sound part barely functions on an iPhone. If you actually want to make a telephone call, good luck, right? But if you want to make a video or take a photograph or post an Instagram or a Snap, beautiful device. So my sense is exactly then that what we should line this data up and say that this torrent of image making is a symptomatic response to the uncertainty of what it is to be a young urban dweller with access to the internet for the first time, and yet with all the other uncertainties that we know circulate around those conditions, not least the fourth major condition, which is living in the era of climate change. And um, here we are on a 60-something degree day in early March, and we're expecting it to be 70 tomorrow, and that's not supposed to happen till May. So we're really seeing this. We're living it. It's not just a sort of scientific abstraction. I think people feel that in their bodies. I think they feel that something's wrong. I think the selfie is a way of kind of checking in and trying to think in a very old-fashioned, if you like, but very recognizable philosophical sense, who am I? And who sees me? And what difference does it make that I might be seen? And so in the relation that the selfie is not simply a narcissism as so many, mostly middle-aged, mostly white, mostly men, commentators have said. Because, yes, it is a majority female practice, and I think that's a very interesting thing. We haven't seen this before. Majority female, but often mostly with more than one person in the so-called selfie, and always directed at an audience, not directed at yourself. As I'll say over and again, Narcissus didn't share his image with anybody. He just spent his entire life staring at it. He didn't make a copy. He just looks at it in a reflective surface, and that's why he dies, because he doesn't do anything else. So... You know, just to misunderstand what narcissism might mean. But it's also to misread what this extraordinary proliferation of new images is. And the selfie is not important, though, ultimately to me in itself, because we're already moving past it. People are already feeling that's a little hackneyed, a little cliche. What it is, is the first new form that's created by this young urban network majority. And it won't be the last. They're shaping things. They're experimenting with things. And we have seen this in the political movements around the world over the last year and a half in particular, but since 2011, and indeed, I would say, right the way back to when the Zapatistas begin their campaign in 1994. This is this moment of rupture. You can't solve the problem of having a young urban majority in the traditional way of more industrial capitalism. Because if you do... As devastated as the planet is, it will become intolerable for all forms of life. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear that the combination of automation, digitization, financialization, and so on, is not going to create an industrial-style employment pattern for the 7, 8 billion population of the world we have now. 
even as climate change is already causing mass migration, war, drought, flood, disaster around the world. These are, this is serious. And this, is, um, this is no small thing. It's epochal. Right? And that, this rupture, unlike some ruptures we may be experienced in the past, it's clear that, at least at the moment, capitalism itself has no solution to this. Doesn't know how to close this. Doesn't know how to deal with this other than by force. And so we're witnessing this is a kind of very striking moment. Problems that we thought maybe belonged to a past moment, like particularly the question of race that surfaces and resurfaces over and again, especially and above all in North America, are not done. They are imbued with a new life in this moment of social crisis. People mm -hmm. are turning back to things that they understand, white people, and generating new political movements that look, in some cases, like old movements, but they're not because they're using new forms to negotiate themselves. So your question gets at really at the heart of what this project's about, which is, in a sense, to introduce, but also to say, what I'm introducing is completely new. And ironically, I would actually say that for the, this is the first time we're really having something you can genuinely call a global visual culture. It actually exists, and it's creating social patterns and social change in ways that we couldn't have predicted in 2007, let alone longer ago. So what we thought we were responding to when we created the field, when we started talking about the upsurge in imagery, we had no idea what was actually coming. Mm -hmm. um, it's good that we had something ready so that we could be in this position to start this discussion. But in a way, I really want to say that it looks the same, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. it's, it's absolutely new. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think the public way in which you address this book to a general readership connects to some of those those same shifts. In the later chapters, Changing the World and Visual Activism, you talk about the Zapatistas, as you mentioned, South Africa, Arab Spring, as well as Occupy. And because I'm connected to you on social media on several platforms, I see that you continue some of the analysis that you actually practice in the book through your own use of these technologies. And one example that I recall is your analysis of the surveillance footage of the killing of Tamir Rice, which was later used in court proceedings. And I wonder if you could talk about how this everyday practice that is available to people familiar with a critical use of media, but perhaps not what we've understood as visual culture in an academic setting, practice these similar kinds of activism and how, in many ways, a lot of these projects you're involved in see a kind of convergence of strategies. That's a great question again. And my sense is, again, that visual culture as an intellectual project is something you do, not something you study. And that is to say it's active as well rather than passive form. And this is the new space that I'm talking about that social media and digital media open up to us to allow us to not just collect and collate and archive and database visual materials, but to investigate and to work with them in ways that, yes, we could have done it before if we had a team. 
But now we can do it in a way with a single machine and an internet connection. So the examples that, I, that you gave stem from this extraordinary explosion of cell phone video and photographs and tweets and Storify and Vines and Instagrams that describe and document police assaults on people of color, primarily African-Americans, in the U.S. And these documents have become judicial. They're becoming evidence. So the first project that I did, which will come out uh, in an academic form in Social Text next time that Social Text publishes, um, was around the grand jury hearings surrounding the killing of Mike Brown. And I was very surprised to see there was an enormous amount of visual material submitted into evidence uh, the, the mainstream media weren't describing. Extensive set of photographs of the scene, which were really set up to make the scene look cinematic, to make it look like it was a, a showdown at the OK Corral. This was a, a, a wide open space where, in effect, two gunfighters, although only one with a gun, were confronting each other, and that this was, in a sense, heroic. Rather than what I think we've become used to in other settings, which is this kind of cell phone video aesthetic, gritty, short, brutal, and absolutely every day. And, and it's documenting a kind of space that we rarely see either in cinema or on television or indeed even in social media, which is a, a kind of, I call it no one's land. It's that space of America where nothing really happens, supposedly. And yet this is a place where people are being killed. So suburban roads, the place where Sandra Bland was arrested and led to her death. It's the side of a road where Laquan McDonald, and all you can see is a chain link fence and some weeds going through the sidewalk. Where Tamir Rice is killed in a scrubby little bit of so-called park in Cleveland. And then the documents that attest to that. And the case of Tamir Rice, the one that you mentioned, is a very specific one indeed, because we were also shocked to see this video footage of the park where, where Tamir Rice was playing. And it was short, and it was a couple of seconds long, and it shows a police car pull up, and a man jumps out, and he fires his gun, and Tamir Rice dies. And that seemed the most open and shot case one could imagine. And then the grand jury hearings were shown a forensic video treatment where those two seconds of video were broken down into some 346 frames, heavily annotated. And by breaking it down frame to frame, an illusion of movement was created mm. so that you could claim, or it was claimed, that Tamir Rice's elbow appears to move, which appears to show that he's going for a gun. And frankly, when one looks at these things directly, you don't see that at all. You see his hands in his pocket. You see his shoulders go back, as you might expect when a car pulls up at high speed, standing right next to you, he's 12 years old. Well, the paradox here, then, that in some cases, movement is what gets you killed. The slightest movement. If you don't comply by remaining absolutely stock still, that will get you killed. In other cases, moving is what gets you arrested, because Mike Brown was, was walking down the street. And Darren Wilson took exception to that and wanted him to get off the street and walk 
on the non-existent sidewalk, just walk on the side of the road. So these paradoxes amount. But we have these visual materials. We can work with them. We can show people. You don't have to mystify it in, um, in languages of gazes and complexes. But it is, in a sense, counter-forensics. And there's a wonderful project that's going on at the University of London that A.R. Weitzman is leading, which he calls forensic architecture, hmm. which he does with much more technical prowess, where they assemble video from multiple sources and social media photographs to show incidents in the occupied territories in, in Israel um, that the Israeli government wants to deny happened or wants to deny happened in the way that they will document it as having happened. So what I'm struck by is the possibility to do things at a personal level, to do things at, as a team, to do things in a way that could actually make a real difference if we were able to connect with social justice campaigns or with even with uh, legal teams under these circumstances. And this is only going to proliferate because why do we have Black Lives Matter and that whole campaign, it's not because police suddenly started shooting and killing African-American people, unfortunately. It's because the possibility exists that they might be documented. And one of those statistics that you mentioned is that the Pew Research Foundation documented that 85% of young African-Americans have a smartphone, which is actually more than young white Americans do by a few percentage points, but nonetheless slightly more, uh, partly because it's their main interface with authorities and it's their main address, if you like, through the text or the email or whatever else, that, whatever other handle that they have. But it can also be used, as we've seen, to document and to show a completely different understanding. For example, you know, we think of Walter Scott, who was shot in Charleston, and the police said, well, you know, he was... He was doing this and that, and then the video emerges, and he was running away, and he was shot in the back. And that changed everything immediately. So we have wanted for a long time, I think, to say that there was something potentially political about doing work with visual media. And there's been some pushback to that. that people have said, well, actually, visual media are really the production of, of global capital, and that... To work on them or with them is to be in the service of global capital. This was a big discussion in the 1990s. But I think there's a clear difference now between the kind of media that are produced by amateur, if you like, or non-professional civilian witnesses, bystanders, social justice activists, and so on, compared to the production of, obviously, corporations and so on involved in the production of commercial and other media. There's a mm -hmm. clear clash involved now. We're able to push back in a way that I think print has always had that possibility in some ways, particularly since the instigation of mass printing in the 19th century. We didn't have that with visual media before. We do now. And, you know, again, I think it changes everything. I think I, I feel that the work that I want to do the work that I can do is completely different now than it was even 10 years ago.
Before we end, I just wanted to ask if there's anything new that you're working on that you want to mention or preview. That's lovely. Thank you for thank you for giving me that chance. I've been working now for some time on matters to do with the whole question of Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And that's expanded into a kind of methodological question that I'm taking into other areas. So that, for example, work that I did previously on climate change, I wanted to say, what does it matter if you say Black Lives Matter in the question of the Anthropocene? How would you think that? How would you think about the presence of Anthropos, the man, in the entirely human era that the Anthropocene is? And one discovers a couple of things. You discover that the geologists who founded their field and are revered and respected for inventing geology were also uniformly world-class racists. Uh, And this begins with Cuvier and Agassiz and people of this kind and runs through the 19th century. And that break that the geologists are so keen in seeing is also a break that they're very keen in seeing in human types, which leads me to another reflection on the very prevalent distinction between the human and the non-human that I want to say, well, yes, of course, but let's not forget how many humans have been designated non-human for so much of modern history. Are we setting that aside in favor of an undifferentiated human in relation to a biologically or chemically or another way non-human form of being? And we want to be very cautious about that. And so what I'm finding then is that what began as a kind of passionate rallying call online to people to engage with social justice is also in itself an embodied theoretical project that has many possible ramifications. And I, I mean, I'm not saying by, I, by any manner of means, exhausting those. Mm. But it's exciting to me to see the way that David Graeber always used to talk about one could write history as the history of social movements. And I think you can do other academic fields as learning from social movements. So visual culture becomes visual activism. What will that mean? How will that, how will that become uh, a thing that we can do and share with people? It's already happening around the world. So much of what I'm, I'm hoping to do is to channel those energies into, into a variety of different projects and see where it goes. Great. I look forward to them, definitely. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking with you, Nick, and I look forward to seeing you again in the near future. Thank you so much for talking to me. Your questions were so interesting. Um, Thank you very much for putting this together. Great. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Have a great rest of your unseasonably warm New York day. (laughs) You too. Bye. See you later. I really like that piece as a counterpoint to what you were doing with the archive piece. You know, with the, um, I mean, these are kind of bookend interviews in some sense because mm-hmm. you know this is this is about what it means to see and what it means to kind of communicate um, visually in very very broad terms. When especially the importance, like so many issues they talked over are just at the front of mind right now. Black Lives Matter, social activism, selfies, the importance of academics communicating with the general public. So all of those elements and that's sort of the flip side of the importance of archiving, preserving our past is also being very in touch with the things that are happening now and being able to communicate that with the, the public. Yes. Yeah. 
the other thing I think is interesting that ties both together is thinking about how academics talk to people outside of our immediate circle. So with Nicholas Mirzoff, the mm. idea of communicating with the public, and with the archiving piece, the idea of academics talking to those who aren't in academia, but whose work we depend on and who we mm -hmm. have to interact with to get our jobs done. And so I think that's something we can uh, take into thought here going forward for Macmedia, maybe do some more of those interviews with those who, um, you know, interact with us in some way, but might not be in, in our little circle. Mm -hmm. So if you have any ideas for that, any interviews you would like to hear us conduct uh, inside or outside of academia, you can reach us at info at aca-media.org. Or catch us on Twitter. What's that Twitter oh, handle? Oh, no, it's been so long as we've said that. Uh, at, it's, they start with ats, right? Twitter, I, hey, at. This is, this is your world, man. On a <laughs> at aca underscore media That's on it. Twitter. We've got this down. Yeah, finally. After this is episode thirty, by the way, 30. we've done thirty of these. Yeah, I was I was kind of thinking maybe we ought to just stop at twenty nine. Why would that be? We'll just kind of keep calling them all twenty nine. Well, oh, like, maybe this I is episode twenty nine. Okay, or we could be twenty nine forever. Oh, right. Or thirty nine is that Jack Benny's? Yeah, uh, I think so. So we can stop at thirty nine. Be thirty nine forever. Yeah. So, uh, you watching anything interesting lately, Michael? Um, got a few things to wrap up in, in terms of long-form serial stuff, but last night I watched the first episode of Woman, which is the documentary series that Gloria Steinem developed for Vice. Huh. Gloria it, Steinem plus Vice? Yeah. All right. Well, it's part of this whole kind of rebranding that the cable network is doing, which is interesting. It's really interesting. And, and yeah. now they're calling themselves Viceland. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure what's, what's going on with that. The vice verse. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, and it's it's attempting to be kind of a um, a global feminist critique. And each I think they're doing like ten episodes. It's an interesting show. It's an interesting idea, and I and I hope it works well. The first episode was a little I don't know. It seemed a little wobbly to me. Hmm. It seemed it was about. Um, mass rape in the Congo as a kind of political tool, and it's horrifying. Hmm. But it also seemed, it came off in this um, actually rather sort of colonial, sort of voyeuristic sort of tone where we had a, spent an awful lot of time watching the reactions of the interviewer who was there kind yeah. of to register our horror at this and um, relatively less time dealing with the um, women there who are, are um, dealing with the issue. So you know it wasn't it wasn't perfect, but it's interesting, and I, yeah. I and um, it's fascinating to think about how a cable network like Vice decides that it wants to kind of pursue a different kind of agenda. So that's cool. I was going to say that's sort of tricky territory for mainstream television to try to tackle in an important, complex way. Yeah, yeah, and I and I have to wonder, you know, whether they're trying to, um, you know, this is not like a lifetime rebranding. This is. Um, it seemed like a kind of rebranding that was about expanding their audience while also keeping their dudes or something. You know, the um, the investigative journalist who is doing this piece is you know she's kind of young and attractive, and they and they mm. um, spend an awful lot of time looking at her. Yeah, and the cynic in me makes me think, oh, this is how they're kind of trying to keep their 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 bro audience or something. But wow. I don't know. I don't know. It'll be interesting. I don't. I don't want to okay. make too strong a claims. At this point, because it's you know it's just getting started. And I only watched a little bit of it, but yeah, worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. 
I've kind of been watching the opposite for the last four days because I've been sick and just sitting on my couch. And so I've been um, I've been catching up with some series like uh, Catastrophe and Better Call Saul. But mm-hmm. the other thing I've been doing because I haven't felt well is just marathoning shows. And I've discovered Food Network works really well for me when I'm not feeling well. Because mm-hmm. usually I don't watch a lot of Food Network pro- programming because it makes me hungry and it makes me want to drink a crap little wine. And, <laughs> th- you know, in many ways that's not healthy. But because I'm not feeling well, I'm not hungry and I don't feel like drinking. And so I can watch hours of like Chopped or whatever, wow. uh, you know, Jada or uh, Ina Garden and not feel those cravings. And it's just, there's something very comforting about watching the process of cooking without being then <laughs> led to feel like I want to drink a bottle of wine and eat, you know, the everything on screen. So that's been my, my sick viewing. That's a very distinct kind of viewing practice. It is. <laughs> and I'd only, you know, thought through it this week. So at least, does that count as getting work done? I think it does. I got I work done in the last four They're days. totally then? a paper topic in that. Okay, excellent. I'm going to work on that once I get better. All right. Acmedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the DERF Fund at Denison University. And we couldn't produce this without the help of Bill Kirkpatrick at uh, Denison University, Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester, and Stephanie Brown at University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. It's all brought together by the golden years of Todd Thompson down in Austin. And we greatly appreciate those who participated in today's episode. So Mike Pogorzelski, Joan Lindner, May Hadong, and Nicholas Mirzoff. So we wish all of you a good summer. You'll hear from us again soon, and hopefully you can get all those summer projects going. That's right. Food Network. That's right. If you're feeling sick, Food Network. Food Network.